Good evening, Hope Church. Open up to Ephesians chapter 5, which is the portion of our scripture tonight. <clears throat> While you're turning there, uh, I, have two, I have three boys. Two of them know this uh, because they're old enough. The other one is working on it. Uh, we, uh, uh, we say in our household, Ford boys do not give up. That is what I try and instill the kids when Arthur is in a hard or difficult situation. And if he's having a good day, because let's be honest, he's a kid. He says to himself, I'm a Ford boy. Ford boys don't give up. And then he keeps on trying. I'm trying to instill it in him. One of the other things that we do as a family is that around family worship time, towards the end, I say, Ford boys, what is your profession? And they each say, a little bit because I'm trying to make them holy, kind of because I love the movie 300 and my son's name is Leonidas. They all say, Christos Kurios, which is the Greek of Christ is Lord. They say, Christos Kurios, au, 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 and they smash their spoons on the table. That's, that's a part of what it means to be a Ford. Now, maybe, maybe you answer back and say, I thought you're a Baptist, and that means kids aren't born Christian. Kids aren't born into the confession that Christ is Lord. They have to learn that. And, but the reality is that this is the identity I give to the, the idea, the abstract uh, of a Ford child, of a Ford boy, and so that they, what I'm saying over them is that this is the identity that you've been given as my son. Grow up into it. Don't contradict it. Don't walk away from it. Grow up into it and live in light of it. And that is what Paul does in Ephesians 5 here tonight. He says, which has been a theme for the last few weeks, the, the first few chapters was him giving us our identity in Christ. Forgiven, purchased, adopted children. We have a God that has forgiven us, that is glad that we are in his family and that loves us. That is an amazingly powerful Thing to recall. The Father loves you. Your dad might not. I don't know. Maybe you've had a terrible life, a terrible family, or, or whatever. You don't even know him. I don't know who he is, but I know that in Christ you have a Father, the Father, and he loves you. That identity that is ours in Christ, Paul then says, now live in light of it. If that is true about you, and by faith in Jesus it is, even if it feels like it's not sometimes, there is a lifestyle that must go with that identity. There is an empowerment that comes with that identity, which is the Holy Spirit. There's a new life that is given to you and commanded of you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see in chapter 1 through 14 is where we're going to be tonight. And I'm going to read it for us and we'll go through in our normal pattern of exposition. So hear now the words of the one true living God from this wonderful epistle to the Ephesians. Chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers uh, with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part 
in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. May God bless the reading of His inerrant, powerful word in our midst this evening. Paul starts out here with a reminder of who the Ephesians and everybody who calls on the name of the same Lord as the Ephesians, everybody who calls on the name of Jesus has this identity that he starts with in verse 1 and 2, that you are beloved children who Christ has given himself up for. That's the starting point. That has to be the basis and the foundation of every moral command that comes out of the passage tonight is that he's not saying, in order to be children, here's what you got to do. In order to be forgiven, here's what you need to achieve. In order for God to consider you as paid for by Jesus, you have to be a certain type or a certain quality of believer. That's not the case. All you have to do is be somebody that is called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that in his death, you reckon it is your death. In, in his payment for sin, you realize he was paying for your sin. In yourself, you're a filthy sinner. In Jesus Christ, you can be washed, cleansed, and forgiven. And in his resurrection, he was opening the doors of eternal life to anybody who comes. So that right now, anybody who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus and trusts in him gets to be called by God a child of God, a forgiven person, a, a, an adopted soul, a, a, a purchased person in the Lord Jesus Christ who Jesus gave himself up for. That's the most important thing. He says, therefore, if you have been purchased by Jesus, if you're a child of God, if you're adopted into his family, walk in love. And then he gives us multiple ways that we are to not walk in the opposite of love, which for a grand portion, uh, most of the, the themes and the sins that he attacks tonight, it is somehow related to sexual immorality. A lot of it is, is the acts of sexual immorality. Some of it is the lusts of sexual immorality. Some of it is the desire of sexual immorality. Some of it is the speech that is impure in sexual ways or, or, or uh, uh, immoral ways. Uh, but altogether... Paul is going to say, you are a child of light, therefore walk as children of light, children of God, walk in love. So look at verse 3. He starts out with a uh, commandment against, in verse 3 and 4, he commands against doing those things which contradict your identity. He says, sexual immorality, all impurity, and covetousness must not even be named among you. Sexual immorality is, in the Greek, it's one word that is porneia. It's simply a catch-all term for any kind of sexual act, whether there's feelings involved or not, sexual act of any kind that is outside of a male-female consensual covenantal marriage relationship. Any kind of other relationship, any sexual behavior outside, so maybe, maybe it's homosexual marriage, no such thing, that's immorality. Maybe it's, maybe it's marriage with somebody on the side or a three-person marriage, no, immoral. Maybe it's, it's outside of marriage, but we really do love each other, no, immoral. 
any kind of sex act, whether it's the full thing or any kind of uh, a, a way, an act along the way to it, any kind of sexual act outside of a covenantal man-woman marriage is sexual immorality and comes under this broad term of porneia. Sometimes it is translated fornication, which is another kind of catch-all term anyway. Fornication is the kind of sex that happens outside of a marriage covenant. This could be, and, and this was such a common theme and a common sin and a common trouble for Gentile converts to Christianity in the early church because their culture had normalized it. Their culture had promoted it. The philosophers had argued its, its benefit. There was some of the Stoics that weren't really keen on lots of sexual immorality, but that was just because it wasn't self-controlled enough. So you could do it as long as you're in control of yourself as an alpha male. We get, we get the Andrew Tates of our day today, fools in every generation. But none of them had the, had the ethic in the Gentile world that sex was alone for that man and woman in, mar in marriage covenant. Often, more well-to-do men would have their wife, who is basically just a baby incubator and a cook, but then for sexual uh, 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 pleasure, they had a concubine, and then if they were out on the town, concubine's not with them, well, they'd go to the prostitute, and of course, then they'd have their, uh, the gal that hangs off their shoulder when they go to nice events and balls and ceremonies. So that the wife was not, was not a, 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 a sole experiencer of a husband's love and marital affection. And this was entirely normalized. There was prostitution and all of these things that we'll say tonight had their, had their uh, uh, equivalence in the ancient world. It's prostitution. It's sleeping around with multiple partners. It's one night stands. It's, it's Tinder dates in our day and age. You, you may think or just assume that surely we don't have to really talk about that's a non-Christian problem, that's a, that's a non-Christian sin, the whole Tinder date hookup culture, and yet everything that Paul says tonight is meant to be a Gentile problem, not a Christian problem, which is why it's such a problem in the church, because it's still happening. So if we just get a little bit realistic, we need to address that sort of thing. Absolutely no Christian has any excuse whatsoever for ever having the Tinder app on your phone. If you're ignorant of what that app is, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Your teenage children probably need to know about it though so that you can warn them and keep them holy. Tinder dates. No Christian should ever have that sort of involvement. This is so commonly and intentionally, I will add that, Sexual sin, especially among young, young couples, sexual sin and sleeping together because they love each other is so often overlooked because it's just easy to, it's, it's the easiest thing to sort of avoid, but it is intentionally overlooked in the church. Some pastors just tolerate it because what are you going to do? Right? It's pretty unrealistic, not to mention legalistic, Pastor Paul, to come and tell, tell young people and tell couples that they just can't have sex till marriage. We're not in some Victorian Puritan age anymore. No, Paul was in the Roman Empire and he was telling people to refrain from this sort of sexual immorality. It is an expectation, a baseline expectation for Christian maturity. But it is intentionally overlooked and it is extremely common. In fact, those two are interlinked. It is so common in the church because it is so overlooked and not preached on. It is not preached on because it is one of the most common sins. Young people, even people in ministry, and I'll say from men that I've known, even pastors committing sexual immorality with people they're not married to, simply because the, the commands of Paul, and more importantly, the identity that Paul gives us in Christ, is not rightly preached and understood. 
sexual immorality. <laughs> or other acts of sexual immorality and porneia would be going to the clubs to, to do all sorts of physical maneuvers and acts with strangers, friends with benefits, cohabitating with somebody that you plan to marriage, plan to marry before your marriage. Cohabitating is a sin. Your body and, the, and everybody else's body, your body is something that is given to somebody else in the covenant of marriage. When you get married, you don't own your body anymore. When, they, when you get married, they don't owe their body anymore. You own each other's bodies. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7. If you're an autonomous, you know, postmodern Christian, you don't like that language, you've got to read your Bible more. We own each other's bodies for the sake of love and mutual benefit. What this means is that if somebody, and, and that's such an intense thing to consider your body's belonging to somebody else, Paul says, yes, that's why it's protected by a lifelong oath and vow that we call the marriage covenant. It's not meant to be flippant. It's not meant to be light and easy, which is what our world tries to make it with sexual pro, uh, 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 promotion of immorality. Rather, it is meant to be something in the marriage covenant. That is why your body is not yours to just give away to anybody outside of the context of marriage. It, is, it belongs to your future spouse. It is at this moment belonging only to the Lord, borrowed to you for a time until you die, but we're told to be wise stewards of our body. Or another way of the, that sexual immorality and porneia comes into the Christian's life, but this time maybe, maybe not in acts done with the body, but in other ways viewed through mediums and different uh, uh, avenues, is pornography. The viewing of sexually illicit material through the phone, through the internet, through whatever it be, or, or watching movies that are heavily dosed with nudity and sexual immorality, without filters and all those sorts of things. These, these things are porneia, sexual immorality. They are, pornography is one of the, 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 the worst <coughs> uh, prolific sins amongst men. I mean, the, the statistics are like 80 to 95% of men are watching regularly pornography. The other 5% are just liars. And, and the statistics don't change all that much going into the church. It only drops a, a few percent if, it, now it de depends how you define church, but of course this is broad, weak, soft evangelicalism across the West. It is one of the most prolific sins because it is so easy to access, it is entirely free, and it is immediate, and it's anonymous. Because all of those things are lies. It's not free. It's costing women and people their lives because they're, 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 they're living these horrible, uh, assaulting sort of lifestyles. It's not free to you because it is costing you and your future spouse intimacy and holiness, which you are supposed to maintain. It is very easy to access, yes, but it is not anonymous. The Lord keeps account and makes bare everything that is ever done in the secret place. Pornography is a is a prolific sin even in the church and Christians need to put it away from them. Or things like reading of smut novels and romance books and erotic sort of uh, literature and stories or the usage of, of the, the sort of thing that only the 21st century could come up with, OnlyFans. It, it is a horrendous as like like as a dad it's it, it's worrying about the sort of life and, and what sort of sexual ethics is going to be prolific in the generation to come i'm going to be the father of a daughter in september and i'm i'm just ready to move out to, to land somewhere by 12 shotguns and not let any man within any uh, uh within 100 kilometers of my daughter this this world what what we've done is is created this 
no, nobody bats an eye at it anymore. Uh, OnlyFans will be, the, will be the main sponsor of a major, major sporting event and have their huge signs right over the TV and no one, no one gives a rip. And it is, it is prostitution, which should be illegal, made, made into some accessible subscription dollar amount per month where women upload things and, and are degraded. This is the heartbreaking thing. Degraded to a mere dollar amount per month that men get to access all of that material too. Now, of course, women who utilize it are immediately ousted. It's obvious they do it there on the screen. But the men who use it anonymously, the stats just aren't out there. I would be afraid of statistics, honest statistics being done, how many church-going men are utilizing this kind of sinful, disgusting, death-worthy act. I was sitting across one time, uh, somebody one time, and this is coming up in verse 5 to 7. I'm jumping the board a little bit. But just in case there's anybody who's tolerating this sort of sin in the room, sitting across from a guy once, and he was asking how quickly he should stop sleeping with his girlfriend, even though they're planning to get married. And I simply said, I don't know if you even have to the end of the day. You've been calling yourself a Christian. You've been playing all of these cards. You're waving hi to everybody at church. You're sleeping with the daughter of God. He might kill you the Savo. And he sort of chuckled like, this is, yeah, come on, pastor, let me have it. And I said, I'm serious. God kills people in the Bible for this sort of thing. You want to read again Moses' story in Numbers of how many thousands were killed because they were sleeping with the women of, uh, of the Moabites? This is no joking matter. God literally says in this passage, the wrath of God is coming upon the children of disobedience. You have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God if this is your behavior. And every time that the, the culture and our world invents a new way of sinning, Christians sin in it anonymously until it becomes the faux pas and they get found out. And, then it and so what we need to do is a culturally engaging church that is filled with lots of young people and in a world that is, is saturated by the internet is name it and claim it first up. That's a new usage of the name and claim phrase. We need to say, this is sinful. Let us corporately as a body hold one another to account, but be those that despise and will root out and will throw out all the weeds of sexual immorality in this kind of way. Any internet usage of sexual immorality needs to be thrown away by everybody who calls the Lord their God. There's another way. Not a subscription, not quite as prostitution, not quite as heavy or hard. There is a way that... Look, it's mostly gals, so I'm going to speak to, to, to the women, but, but I don't mean to isolate the women in this room. But there are ways that ladies can, can post sexual, suggestive, half-naked photos all over their social media or the internet and think that that is somehow any better than literally men waiting in your room for you for when you get home and as you undress, snapping photos of you. It is not. It is exactly as voyeuristic. It is just as sinful. It's just voluntary from you. And, and, and some gals put up the, the, the equivalent of them in underwear over their social media, sometimes because of naivety. They, they just don't realize that there's so many perverts on the other end of the internet. Sometimes it's because they're hungry for this attention and this, uh, this compliments and all of this, these eyes looking at them and, and propping them up. Sometimes it's that. It's usually some kind of a mix of two. You don't understand quite how many perverts are out there, and you do know you shouldn't be doing this, and you're getting a rise out of it. But, but, but I, I tell women that it, it, it should be a practice that you do away with. You, there is probably a large degree of naivety in the average gal who posts that sort of thing. I say this as a guy that has worked in male-only staff rooms, that the men you work with, the men you went to school with, the men in your hometown, the guys who know you on social media, they have snapshots of you, if you do that, on their phone. 
They share it with friends. They keep it when after many years you grow up and you start a family, they still have your photos in a folder under your name on their phone. Men are sinful. There's a reason that if you trace economy throughout civilization, it's basically just a, just a, just a habit of tracing sexuality. That's all it is. So the, the money follows sex every day, all of the time, in every civilization, usually to its judgment. But, but while gals need to hear the call of God away from that sexual immorality, even in a softer form, men need to hear it all the more because men can do it a lot more and do it a lot more anonymously. Guys don't have to do the posting. They, just, they can just look at people's social media. They, they just are careless with what they're scrolling at, the, the pages they follow. The, 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 maybe it's it, it, just a sports page that you follow or a car page that you follow or something else. Or, or maybe it's the model page that you follow. All of those things. Or the looking at those uh, people that you know from school or from work or from uni or from church and looking at their pictures in an arousing way is sexual immorality. And you don't get to tell yourself that it's not technically porn, it's not technically sin. It's sexual immorality in the house of God in such a way that Paul here wants specifically any sin that is being, being committed to be repented of and put away. He says here impurity, which is not entirely different. It's just that porneia mostly refers to the, to the acts, physical, online, however it's looking. Impurity more speaks to the heart. Jesus said that it's from the impurity of the heart that we act out of. And so here he's talking about the desires, the passions, the lusts, the things that we want to do. And, and we might feel like that's just far too far. You can tell me, don't do these things outwardly. Right? You can tell me, don't, don't have a, uh, a pornography account or don't be going out to the brothels. You can't tell me how to feel. And Paul says, I can exactly do that because I've been told by the Spirit that by faith in Jesus, you have a new heart. You no longer have dominion under sin. You have dominion over sin. You are able to live righteously according to the word of God because you've been enabled to in the gospel. Yes, Paul even addresses how we feel, the things we desire and burn for. We need to take, into, uh, uh, take captive to be submissive to the Lord God because they contradict our identity. What we do in those sinful moments is going against who we are. And Paul wants what we do and who we are to be aligned. That's the definition of sanctification. And then he talks about covetousness or greed, which in verse 5 he comes back and calls that idolatry. Somebody who lives in covetousness and greed is an idolater. It's, it's the reality that somebody looks at something and they desire it so much they'll sacrifice anything to get it. That's called worship. You sacrifice anything for something else, that something else is your God. So you'll sacrifice relationships and money and sleep and all these things to get this sexual sin or to get this opportunity or to get this job or to get that relationship or to be thought of in a certain way. That becomes for you an idol, especially when you, commit, when you sacrifice the law of God and his commandments and what you are and aren't allowed to do. When you sacrifice God on the altar, that thing is most certainly an idol. Other times, it's not that a thing is an idol, it's that the person themselves is the idol. And covetousness is nothing more than an act of zeal for their God. My God deserves everything. My God is worthy of everything. My God deserves all glory, all might, all power, and all honor. I'm going to give them everything, and I'm that God. I will give myself everything. There's nothing I want that I'm not allowed. 
That's just the, that's just the mindset of the coveter, of the idolater. They are in self-worship. What they want, they deserve. And who is God or anybody else to say no? And here's what I think Paul has done. He said, stay away from the acts of immorality. Stay away from the impure lusts. And even stay away from the tendency to want more than you have. And it's kind of like he's gone from the big things all the way down to the much less serious things in such a way as to show us that if you start along this path of merely having a lack of self-control, you will end up being somewhere you've never thought you've been down the path of sexual immorality. Maybe people who would never think they would ever have an abortion. They would never commit adultery. They would never sexually assault somebody. They would never get divorced for unbiblical reasons. They would never do those things, surely. But in their younger years or in their early relationships or even in their individual life, they just didn't have a hold over their self-discipline. They simply didn't have discipline over their greed. And so what they saw, they wanted and thought, that it just seemed like I overdrank every now and then. I just overate every now and then. I just bought more than I needed most times I went shopping. I, I just sort of used online shopping as sort of a, a release for myself. It just seemed like a little bit of greed. What Paul is saying is that greed mixed with sexual impurity arrives at horrible sexual immorality. Because it leads to a pregnancy you didn't want and greed for things that you want and hate for things you don't want so you kill the child and you never thought you would. Or you drive your girlfriend to the uh, clinic to go and kill her child and you never thought you'd arrive here. How did you get here? A little bit of greed, a little bit of sexual immorality leads you to a terrible dark place. Paul says eradicate all of it from the Christian life because none of it is in sync with your, your identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's named and he's pointed out all these things. And what he says at the end of verse uh, 3, he says, it should, none of these things should be named among you. And what he's meaning is, you should ne it, the situation should never, should never be such that outsiders to the church can look into the church and say, oh, that's that girl who's sexually immoral. There's that guy who is sexually immoral. They can name, and the, 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 the wording in the Greek is more like labeling, pointing out and accurately labeling sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness in the church. We, we should never give the outside world that in chapter 3, we've learned that the church is supposed to be a display of God's wisdom and His glory to the world forever and ever. We are never to live in a way that makes the reputation of God in the world to the unbelievers and to the angels and to the demons, we should never represent God in such a way as to say he makes us idolaters, he makes us sexually immoral, he makes us impure. That's the glory of God. We must live against that so that we can rightly glorify God. And then he, in verse 4, he talks about general inappropriate speech and it seems like they all have a sexual tone to them. The two of the phrases that he uses are what we call hapax legomenons, which basically means they never come up again in the, in the Greek New Testament. So whatever translation they use for these words, sometimes it's a good guess because there's no other time that he uses it in the Bible to be able to know the context in another situation. But, but here's what commentators sort of best guess, is that specifically filthiness means shameful, obscene language about offensive topics and sexual remarks and talking about sexual exploits. Right, the, the, the male staff room sort of language on the Monday morning. Foolish talking means like the, the grade nine locker room boy talk about the, the gutter talk, the, 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 the filthy, immoral, vulgar joking. 
And then the crude joking, in the Greek it literally means basically to turn a phrase which just sounds like sort of a rhetorical speaking uh, implement. You know, uh, uh, to be able to turn a phrase is sort of be witty and be clever. And that's how other authors use this word back in the ancient Greek world. They say it's good to be able to be witty in your language. So it's hard to know exactly what Paul means, but probably he's referring to what was a habit amongst philosophers in being able to take almost anything your opponent said in an argument and turn it back on them as a sexual joke and insult. High class, sort of British humor, right? Uh, uh, innuendos, uh, uh, double entendres, basically whatever your opponent says, just turn around and I'm hearing, you go, ah, that makes him sound gay. Or turn it around and that's not what your mum said. All that kind of language is this way of double entendres and innuendos that Christians should not get their laughs out of. Uh, we should be above that sort of thing. And of course, we have to ask, like, at what point is humor about evil things an evil thing in itself? Because we even have biblical examples of Elijah using toilet humor to sort of mock the idolatry of the Baalites. So your God's not answering you. Maybe he had a lot of protein yesterday and it's stuck and he's on the toilet and he's groaning. Maybe you need to go help him out. Maybe he's just taken away. He's using this toilet humor to do what? To mock evil. To mock foolish godless ideologies. Now, that's something that we see Jesus do, Paul do, Scripture do, is utilize humor about evil things to make light of it, so not to make light of it, but to make it look idiotic to, the, to everybody listening. Sometimes it's utilized in order to sort of warm us up to a difficult conversation. It can be used for that. But what he's talking about is the humor where we're getting our jokes and enjoying laughing about those things that Jesus died for and God hates. Is humor good and godly? Yes. Is it really good to make fun of godless, idiotic ideologies? Yes. Is it really easy to slip down that path into sin? Yes. Should we be very careful? Yes. And if we think, well, where's the line? How much can we laugh about evil in our world? I think what Paul gives us here when he says, instead of this, let there be thanksgiving. He's basically saying, don't look for the line, just set the new standard. Instead of wondering where the line is of what you can joke about, just ask yourself, does this comport, does this synchronize with, is this, does this go hand in hand with thankfulness to God? Right? How many guys would not pray a thanks to Jesus over the date that they just went and sinned with their girlfriend on? Is that, sorry, before you go inside to dad, can we just say a, a prayer of that? Let us read the Psalms, right? Uh, uh, you, your language around the, maybe the, the coffee table or you're having a beer with the guys or you're chatting with the ladies or whatever it may be, think to yourself, would Thanksgiving go hand in hand with this conversation or is this around the corner and we wouldn't want to mention in the same phrase as thank you God for this wonderful day in fellowship. So rather we should live, th Paul says in Romans 1 verse 22 that people knew God but they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And so, he says, their foolish hearts were darkened. Thanksgiving to God forces us into a posture of worship and recognition. I don't get everything I want. I'm not allowed everything I want. I need to be thankful for what he's given me. It has a preserving and sanctifying effect to be continually in a process and in a stature of thanksgiving in our homes, in our personal life, in our conversations. Thanksgiving sets a new standard. <clears throat> so he said to us, he's, he's listed these sins and says, stay far from them. And I love at the end of verse, uh, uh, verse 3, I believe it is here, where he says, as is proper among the saints. 
he's maintaining through this whole passage, I'm telling you not to sin because I know you're saints. I'm telling you to stop living like that because I know you are saints. He's maintaining it the whole way through. So he's not saying if you're a Christian who, who's sinning these ways, you're not a saint anymore. You're not a child of God anymore. You're not bought by Jesus Christ anymore. Because if that was true, he'd have no grounds to tell you to do better. But because he acknowledges that you have been purchased, you have been adopted, you are empowered, therefore he can command. Put away sexual immorality, crude joking, immorality and foolish talk and these other things that he has mentioned. But in verse 5 and 7, at this point what we hope for is to, to sort of turn a, turn a corner in the passage. We've all hopefully feeling particularly convicted and know what areas we need to repent of and Paul's now going to take the gas off and relieve us and remind us of the gospel. But instead, he gets even more intense with his warning. And in verse 5 and 7, he warns the Christians, he warns the Christians, do not tolerate an excusing of these sins. This is what he says. He says in verse 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Verse 7, Therefore do not become partners with them. He says it twice. In verse 5 he says, You can bank on this. I know that when I mention sex outside of marriage, and when I mention pornography, and when I mention posting things and reading smut, Everybody went, yeah, I might apply there, you know, possibly. It's hard to know in my situation just because of my background. And a doctor told me it was an addiction one time. And I'm just not entirely sure that it's a sin if I'm thinking of it being a future spouse. We think all of these dumb ways to try and excuse ourselves to really just be able to say, I'm just not, it's just less clear, right? The spirit made me feel bad, but I, no, I can't be sure that that was sin. And Paul says, hey, wake up. You can be sure. You need to be black and white on this issue as Paul is black and white. And then he says in verse 6, and don't let anyone deceive you because we're all prone to start deceiving ourselves at this point and go, I know it would be sin in somebody else, but you know what? I do have needs. I have been, I have been uh, not treated well in my past. I, I was sort of uh, broken down and mentally, mentally abused or, or I do have a particularly high libido. That's what my doctor told me. Right? And we, we make these excuses for ourselves and Paul says, do not let yourself deceive yourself. Well, sometimes it's the boyfriend. You know, we're married in God's eyes and I promise you I will marry you one day so it's okay that we do this. And you know, if it's loving, then, then it's honoring the spirit of the law anyway. And he's lying to you, and he's sinning with you, and you need to stop letting him deceive you because he does not love you. Love does not delight in wrongdoing. That is what Paul says. So whatever he's doing with you, he enjoys it. It's not love. Or don't let the liberal professor, don't let him deceive you. Don't let him come along to you and go, you know, I know Paul says this in the ESV, but what he said in the original, we really just can't know. Because, because in the first century, sex was more an act of worship 
And you see, as long as you're worshipping God while you're having your homosexual sex, or as long as you're worshipping God while you're fornicating, really, that's, that's what God really wants. And, and after all, Paul was in house arrest at this point. Who even knows whether he was getting his recommended dosage of vitamins and minerals each day? He was probably a little bit cuckoo as he's writing this. And don't you know, I've read this one, that Paul actually suffered with his ho own homoerotic thoughts. And so he's just projecting onto everybody else when he talks. He's a single guy sexually frustrated in a prison. That's why he's so angry at everybody else enjoying themselves. No. Those professors, those books that come across your path when you're at the Christian bookshop, book those ideas that come across on the internet, those doctors, those liberal professors are going to hell with all of their certificates and doctorates. Do not let anyone deceive you. It is as black and white as the living God has made it clear in this passage. And the clarity is this. That anyone who is, a, who is sexually immoral, or who is impure, or who is covetous, which is an idolater, worshipping a false god, they're going to hell. They do not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Because part of the inheritance that we receive is a down payment of the spirit that makes us holy. And they do not have anything waiting for them but the wrath of God which is coming on the children of disobedience. So here's what Paul's saying. There is a distinction between a Christian sinning in ways against their identity and a non-Christian living out their identity. Because what does he call them? He calls them children of disobedience. So disobedience fits them well. It, looks, it, make, it fits them well. It's a good jacket. It's buttoned up all the way. It's been tailored fit, adulterous, immoral, homosexual, pornography, all of that stuff. It fits them because they hate God. They haven't been born of God. They're against God. The wrath is, of God is coming upon them because they're children of disobedience. That's not who you are. So he's saying, don't live in light of their identity. You have a new identity in Christ, righteous, empowered, and loved. Why are you going and doing the things that they do when you have a greater nature, a second nature, a born-again nature, a new inheritance in Jesus Christ? Your identity informs everything. And we see that Paul makes this distinction again in verse 7. He says, so do not become partners with them. You feel like because you sin sexually, Paul's calling you someone who has no inheritance in God. You think that because you sin sexually, Paul's saying you're a child of disobedience and God's wrath is coming on you. And then you hear him say that blessed word, them. He's actually talking about a different group of people. He's saying you need to stop doing this because you're not one of them. It is entirely and completely contradictory. You're a living contradiction if you are going to heaven with an inheritance in Christ and God, but then you're acting like the people whose inheritance is wrath. Fix the way you live because of who you are. Here's where the warning hits in. If you're somebody who simply tolerates, continues to excuse your sin, and fails to repent, then Paul says, we have to say, Jesus says in Matthew 18 that Christians have to take a look at you and say, now it's indistinguishable. Now your confession of being going to heaven and having Christ with you and having the Holy Spirit, nothing of that makes sense. You actually, not only are you a Christian living like them, you look, smell, everything about you is like them. It's probably more likely you identify with them and you're going where they're going. 
You're acting like a child of disobedience and you're not repenting. You're not responding to the word of God. You're not, you're not being conflicted as the word is preached and the, 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 the sin is condemned in the Bible and you're not turned away from your sin by that and you don't see the light of Christ and choose to follow him. If you're not doing that, then friend, you just look now top to bottom like a child of disobedience. I'm not omniscient. I can't see your soul. I can see your life. And until your life reflects a saved person, we have to treat you like an unsaved person. We have to treat you as somebody out of the church. Don't get to take communion out of the membership because you keep on sinning sexually, abusing people, being harsh to your wife, speaking filthily, living immorally. Paul warns us against the tolerance of these things by saying the people who do those things by identity are going to hell. The longer you do them, the less clear it becomes that that's not your identity. And your claim to faith and your baptism and your church membership start becoming very thin veils over a disgusting, rotting corpse. So what do we do with the darkness? Look at verse 8. What do we do with the darkness? If, if you're knowing, I'm a, I'm a child of light, I, I, I want to walk in the light, I recognize sin, maybe, uh, maybe in myself, maybe I know my, my friend is in sin, what do we do as a church gathering, as a body of Christ, about the darkness and the pockets of darkness within us, like mold underneath the carpets? What do we do? Paul says this in verse 8, At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. What does he do again? He goes back to identity. You want a, you want a really practical thing to do this week to fix your sin? Remind yourself daily about your identity. That is the most important contribution you can make to your godliness. The most important primary thing you need to do before you do anything else. The first thing you need to do is remind yourself about your identity in Christ and what God says about you in the gospel. Child, forgiven, purchased, empowered, inheritance to come, loved by my Father. Remind yourself of that. You are, he says, a child of light. You were darkness, now you are light. Therefore, walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and true, and, sorry, good and righteous and true. And try and discern what is pleasing to the Lord. He says, walk as a child of light because you are light in the Lord. And you say, but I've, but I've been watching pornography. But you are light in the Lord, not in yourself. Say, but, but I've been sleeping with my partner and sinning and lying about it the whole time. And taking communion. Yeah, you were darkness, but you are light in the Lord. God can lead you to walk as children of light. But, but I've been so immoral. I'm the filthy joker. I'm a disgusting, immature person in the way I speak and think and look on the internet. Yes, you were darkness. You have not been dispelling that darkness near disciplined enough, but you are by nature a children of light. So walk, in, walk as children of light. He keeps going back to identity because he knows we tend to identify ourselves by our works. He wants to remind us, identify yourself by Christ's work. You're not what you do. You are who Christ made you. But what you do matters. And so he says in verse uh, nine, then you, the fruit of light is found in good and, good and right and true, and so try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Most of the time, you don't need to discern much. It's black and white. Sleep with them, don't sleep with them. Pretty obvious. Google that or don't Google that. Pretty obvious. Sign up for this disgusting magazine or don't. Pretty obvious, black and white. 
Sometimes the will of the Lord in our life, and this is usually when you're convicted and you have a lifestyle to change and a relationship to break off and you need to change churches and you need to be more careful about the job that you work and you need to change your living situation because you've got to move out with your girlfriend and you need to get a new computer or some kind of uh, 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 cage uh, between you and the, the, the internet and, and this is where discernment kicks in. You need some experience, some wisdom, some discernment to kick in. How can I please the Lord considering the mess I've got myself in? But God is with you and God will help you. I, I love that he talks about pleasing the Lord, not, not just obeying the law. He doesn't just say, do good stuff. He says, please your master. For every truly born-again Christian, however much sin you've been tolerating, this is the chief, highest, deepest desire that you have. You want to please the Lord. You want to die and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's, that's all you want. That's the ultimate thing. The Puritans used to talk about the, the double joy of a clean conscience. They would say everybody, a Christian living in sin or a Christian with a good conscience, can all enjoy the same steak, the same sunrise, the same wine, the same sex. It's all gifts from God. But the Christian walking with a clean conscience and a pure heart before God, knowing they're in the right, can enjoy the steak as a gift from their father, under whose smile they enjoy it. A Christian can see the sunrise and worship God in whom they are with in fellowship. A, good, a clean conscience Christian can enjoy everything maximally, in a double joy, because I'm enjoying it for its own right, plus the joy of enjoying it with a good conscience under my father. And so Paul wants us to be those who are zealous to please the Lord. And we do it this way. Look at verse uh, 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. This is not, I believe, a, a passage about what to do with the culture's darkness. Don't live like them, expose them, preach about them, right? That's why I never mention the sins of the culture. No? No one's listening, right? No, it's not a command to condemn the sins of the culture, even though the church should do that. It is primarily this whole passage about what Christians should do with sinning Christians. 90% of the time, the person's sins you need to worry about is you. But also in the Christian life, we need to worry about the sins of our, and address the sins of our brothers and sisters. So he says, what do you do? When your brother and sister is in sin and you know it, they told you, or you've seen them, or some things aren't adding up and you need to approach them about it, he says, do not become partakers with them. Expose it. This means when somebody comes to you with an annoying, ragging, nagging complaint about somebody else at church, don't listen to them. You're not being a good friend. You're helping them sin and you're engaging in the darkness. You say, hey, shut up, or something more appropriate for you. That's my line. Have you spoken to this person about this? No? Well, stop complaining. Either get over it or talk to them. Do not become a partaker in that sin. It's childish. If somebody comes to you and they want you to help lie to sort of cover up sins that they've been committing, you do not, for the sake of being a good friend or trying to be nice, cover up sin for them. That's partaking in darkness. Somebody, somebody uh, you know is in sin and, and you're the safe place that they can come to and mention all their sin and you just won't say anything because you're a safe space and you're a good friend, that is, that is partaking in sin. That is confirming them and tolerating them and helping them sin against the Lord in darkness. Rather, he says expose them. The important thing is that I don't think he means expose them to others. He means expose their sins to the person. 
Uh, you know your friends in sin. You don't go and shout it out at the next members meeting. You don't go and post it onto all of the church, church's social media page. You don't go and tell everybody else about what, what the guy that you know has been doing at church. You don't turn the light on and, and put their sins up on a projector. You go to the friend, you get them alone in their, in their soul, in their room, and you turn the light on and say, this place is a mess. I'm, I'm not shaming you to other people. Here's some scripture that applies to this situation. How can I help? How can I pray? How can I restore you in a spirit of gentleness as Paul commands in Galatians 6? How can I bring you back up to righteousness? Please let me help. And if you're not enough, that's when Jesus says, well, bring somebody else to come and try and exhort them and help them. And then if you can't do that, then you've got to call the elders and they come and try and jam that light switch on so that they can respond and see what is needing to be dealt with. And if at that point they say, no, my light switch doesn't work, I receive no light in my soul then we say then you're a child of darkness and we can't affirm you as a church believer but the spirit of restoration needs to be in every one of us that when we see our beloved in sin we approach them one-on-one we in an appropriate way and we turn the light on with them and let scripture be the lamp onto the situation so that we can walk out of this rut together there are some pits that you can get yourself into on your own by falling but you need a friend to come down with you to then help you up Galatians 6.2 says, if, somebody, if any brother is caught in sin, let those who are spiritual restore him in a spirit of gentleness, but keep watch on yourselves, lest you also be tempted. Every time you try to restore a brother or sister, there's temptations for you to step in the hole as well. Or in verse 14, now he speaks to the individual. Maybe after tonight, a friend has spoken to you. Maybe earlier on in the week, God, uh, God has been using Christians to, to speak to you about sins that they see you in. And they've been approaching you about things. And, and you've been fighting it off and annoyed because you're above this and they don't get it and they don't understand your situation. But in your heart of hearts, you know. And tonight the sermon finds you and you know you need to repent. You know that you're in sin. Verse 14 is for you. Paul quotes an early Christian hymn that predates him. Uh, Somebody wrote this, we don't know who, maybe a church or a few churches. They put it together, they put it in, uh, and Paul knew about it, and he put it into the Bible. He thought it was so profound, he loved it. He says, therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Awake, O sleeper. He, he pulls on these themes from Isaiah's prophecy a lot, especially in this part. He, he's pulling on this theme of Isaiah chapter 60, that the glory of the Lord will appear, so arise and let him shine on you. He says, awake. It's as if he's speaking to Christians, and we've all been here. Some of us are here tonight, and it's like we've been hitting the snooze button on our repentance alarm for months. Stop looking at pornography, and you just keep on hitting the snooze button. I'll get out of it eventually. Stop sleeping with your boyfriend. You just keep on banging the snooze button. I'm sure I'll sort it out once my life's in order. Get to church more regularly and confess the sexual sin that you're engaging in in secret. I'm sure my life will sort itself out. Snooze, 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 and you're sleeping your way to death. And Paul is here using this hymn to say, Awake, get up, wake up, respond, turn the light on, get out of bed, and get ready for righteousness. Awake, oh sleeper he says, and arise from the dead. He's not saying that you're spiritually dead. He said that you look dead. You smell dead. You're acting like you're dead. So get up. You don't say to somebody who's dead to get up. They can't. He's coming to a living Christian and saying, you, get up. I know you're playing dead. Get up out of the bed. You don't really have that headache. You're making excuses for yourself. Get up and get active. 
He says, and Christ will shine on you. I think this is one of the most powerful lies that Christians believe and refuse to repent. They believe that the light of Christ will shine on me if we both just agree, me and Jesus, if we both just agree to ignore my sin and we'll move on. Something he can put up with, he's pretty tolerant. Something he can put up with, I'm willing to put up with it. He likes forgiving, I like sinning. That's just part of my relationship with Jesus. I look at porn. It's just part of my relationship with Jesus. I fornicate. He'll get over it. We think the light of Jesus can come on even if I stay in my dead bed. Or we think, we believe the lie that, that there is some other way to have the light of Christ that doesn't require me to confess and repent. We just cannot believe that going through the horrible, ugly, disgusting, uncomfortable process of sitting down with people we've sinned against, a girlfriend we've let into sin, a, person, a wife that maybe we've looked at, at pornography in secret from, or, or people that we've engaged in, in, in horrible sin, to sit down with them and say, I'm sorry, my identity demands better of me. I mistreated you, God and his word. I'm trying to do better. Will you pray for me? No one believes naturally that on the other side of that is where the amazing, shining blessing of Jesus comes. We just want it to come any other way. No one is comfortable with the idea of sitting with other people or addressing your lifestyle, bringing it up with those close to you, speaking it to an elder and walking in actual... It is so hard to believe that on the other end of that terribly uncomfortable situation that Christ will shine on you. But friend... If you're a Christian, if you have faith in Christ and have been united to him, he will not bless you in your sin. He loves you far too much to do it. He will not tolerate and make you comfortable and help you along to feel like that's an allowable amount of sin. There is no allowable amount of sin in the Christian life. If you see it, you turn the lights on, confess it, bring it to friends, bring it to elders, bring it to Jesus especially, and deal with it. Get up out of bed, repent, and Christ will shine on you. He will not leave you in shame. He will not kick you out. He will not boot you away from him. He knows what you were when he died for you. And he calls you to repent. And if you're, you're an unbeliever, if you're not actually a Christian, you have not placed your faith in Christ, repented from your sins, and maybe you've been pretending as a Christian, or maybe you know you're not a Christian, but if you're not in Christ, then none of the great promises here apply to you. In fact, I would even say none of the commands apply to you. Because these commands are to Christians who should be living better. But you're dead in your sin. You're a child of disobedience. You're waiting for wrath to drop down from heaven on top of you in hell, and you have no power to obey God. So the command for you tonight is not to do better, not to start stop sinning, not to start living better, not to make yourself a more Christian person. The command of God to you tonight is lay down all your doings. Believe that Jesus died and died for you. That when he bled for sinners, your name was in his wounds. And that when he resurrected, he blasted heaven's doors open for even the likes of you. Tonight, your job is simply to believe in Christ, trust in him, pray for him to save you, and believe that he does. Let's pray. Father God, we are met by your word with, with hard words. We believe, as the Puritans said, that, that hard words from scripture create soft hearts that respond. And soft, squishy words from Scripture create hard hearts that are, that are calloused. Father God, we pray that the hard words of Paul, the, the difficult commands of this sermon would find us and make our souls and our spirits sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. That he would make us able and willing and zealous to repent because you reprove the ones you love. 
Father God, as your bride, may this church see her job to be holy as something that is a high and necessary calling. As those who are your household, may we, may we act in a way that honors our Father. As those who are your temple, may you, may you shine in us in righteousness in a way that points to the God of this temple. As those who are one with Christ in body, would you make us look powerfully righteous and obedient in our lives in a way that honors the head. Father God, as, as believers, as saints, as children of God, would you give to us a desire and a will and a willingness to repent of our sins wherever we are found tonight, whatever habits we have tolerated and whatever sins we have put up with. Would you redeem us, Lord God, make your light shine upon us and give us the beautiful, wonderful, sweet taste of a good conscience. Father God, for any who are not Christians, who are still dead in their sins when they came in here tonight, would you please give them a heart to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of all of their sins. And may you save them, forgive them, and transform them. We pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said... This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.